Hi again, and welcome back to Tracked History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla Rose Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. Okay, Oswin, I want you to imagine something for me, please. Well, imagine you're this person. Um, You're an educated young person. You're intellectually curious. Of course. I'm not suggesting you're not those (laughs) things, obviously. (laughs) And you're embedded into the literary scene of your country. You're a published and an award winning poet and a respected journalist. You have strong social and political opinions. And you've raised the finance for and you've set up, edited and published your own magazine. Okay. And last but not least, you're also a playwright. And your play has received amazing reviews after it's run in the capital's most prestigious theatre. And you're only 26. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Mm. Sounds, oh God, wow. Uh, A high flyer. Mm-hmm, I'm immediately absolutely. thinking someone that young. It's someone like Orson Welles. He was 24 when he did Citizen Kane, I think. Okay. Um, but, uh, wow, that is an impressive list of achievements. Yes. But unlike Orson Welles, we're talking about a woman and we're talking about a black woman. Someone who goes on to have international success, global even, and who is a pioneer and a trailblazer, the first black woman to have a play performed in London's West End, the first to attend the League of Nations, the first black woman employed by the BBC, the first producer, the first presenter. And yet, this is someone who lives and dies alone. On her death, the Jamaican star wrote, I could not help a feeling of sorrow which overwhelmed me, for here was a great Jamaican woman going away from her own native land. A land striving to establish much of what this great woman had to offer. And here she was, going further and further away, not anchored to anywhere, anything or anyone. So that was written just a few days after she died and it was someone who'd met her, I think, just the previous year. Okay, so so I think we've we've got everything here then. We've got brilliance, we've got complexity. Mm-hmm. We've got sadness, we have life, Carla, in its infinite variety. Mm -hmm. So today we want to introduce you to the incredible Una Marson. And here to help us tell Una's story is the writer D. Jarrett McCauley, who very helpfully for us wrote The Life of Una Marson. Thank you so much for joining us today, (laughs) D. Thanks Thanks for having me. So let's have a quick rattle through Una's early life. Una Maud Marson is born on the 6th of May 1905 in Sharon Village, St Elizabeth, in rural Jamaica. She's the youngest of six children, along with three other children her parents adopt. Her father is a respected parson, Reverend Solomon Isaac. And they actually had quite a prosperous life compared to other Jamaicans. As a result of her father's position, he really knew how to bring in the crowds to church, and so he was relatively well paid. They were a middle-class family, and as a child, even before she started school, Una loved reading books, and her sisters also introduced her to poetry, something she later referred to as the chief delight of our childhood days. I mean, remember, I think it's important that time and place, Jamaica is not the Jamaica of today. It isn't an independent, thriving country. This is Jamaica over 100 years ago. It's part of the British Empire. It's ruled by white colonial power. It's also a place where... Uh, Pan-Africanism is uh, is flexing its muscles. In, in 1914, when Una would have been nine years old or so, Marcus Garvey founds the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Kingston. I mean, Dee, are, are you able to 
tell us a bit about what Jamaica would have felt like for Una when she was young and was growing up? Many colonial subjects, wherever they are or wherever they were at the time, were living with the understanding that this was a country that was ruled essentially from London. Their education, their social structures were defined by white people of another establishment. Mm. If you're middle class and Jamaican in that era, you settle into a life experience that in many senses just reflects that of your white counterparts in an English village. Right? Mm. So imagine the world of, I say, Miss, Miss Marvel's world, um, mm. as opposed to the world of, you know, Marcus Garvey or, or Bob Marley mm. um, as a kind of, you know, cultural landmark. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, these people go to church, uh, they sing hymns, they wear Western clothes, they speak English, albeit potentially with a Jamaican accent. But the standards are not being set by anyone who is in their locale. When she's 10 years old, Una wins a scholarship to Hampton High, a prestigious fee-paying girls' boarding school in Jamaica, her father's on the board of trustees. As with so many of the people we feature here on Trapped History, there's early tragedy. Una's father dies the same year. I know in your book, Dee, you mentioned that she idolised her father. It must have been devastating for her. I think it must have been devastating for the entire family because, Mm. of course, at that time, and it's still true now, um, you know, the status of a family is determined by the person deemed the head of the household. Clearly Mm. that was the man. Mm. um, And the, the income came through the church. So, in a sense, this is entirely... Ground shifting immediately that, you know, you're, she was, I called her Parsons' baby in the first chapter of the biography mm. um, because her whole status would have been attached to her father's position. So suddenly, you know, that went. I think the time when, you know, if I look, at, look back at her life, I think at the time when the loss of her father was something she herself wanted to discuss publicly and it would be when she wrote her third play, Pocomania, which um, sees a young girl, a young religious girl, really challenging the views of her Baptist parson father. Mm. So it's not too much of a leap of imagination to think, <laughs> oh, maybe there's something autobiographical going on here. Yeah. You know, that, and the, the daughter is leaning towards Pukumina, which is an African, you know, syncretic sort of religious form and away from the father's church, which is traditional. So mm. maybe there were already in the young Unamas and the seeds of that kind of rebellion. So Una leaves Hampton High in 1922. She moves to the bright lights of Kingston. And four years later, she gets her first break as an assistant editor of the Jamaica Critic, a social and political journal. Within two years... She's outgrown the women's pages, thank God, and she (laughs) sets up her own monthly magazine, The Cosmopolitan, aimed at a new burgeoning market, sort of the middle-class black women in Jamaica. I mean, the Cosmopolitan, firstly, it's it's saying a lot. It's saying this is worldwide, this is Cosmopolitan. But it's also a swipe at Cosmopolitan, which had been set up about 40 years before in America. (laughs) I mean... I think it's good for us to remember that, you know, none of these ideas exist in isolation you know all of us you know as creative people we're all 
looking, seeing what other people are doing mm. and thinking, okay, yeah, that can work work here in my environment. So we shouldn't have an idea of Jamaica then or indeed an idea of Jamaica now as this sort of small island mentality of people who are limited in, in some way, shape or form, that actually mm. there have always been those seeds, if you like, for the globalised thinking, for making these connections, of, you know, looking at the, sure. the politics of migration and, and so on. And, and that is partly why I'm interested in Una Marson, because, OK, she was born there, but as we see really from the early part of her life, certainly her early 20s, she's thinking much more widely about everything. I mean, and, and with The Cosmopolitan, Una becomes Jamaica's first woman editor and publisher determined to showcase feminist ideas alongside a fair dose of liberty and equality. I'm really pleased to say that here, Una's words are going to be spoken by Jenny Steele, a 21st century black British broadcaster and producer with the BBC. 80 years ago, there were no business women in our metropolis. Now there must be nearly a thousand. And what have we been able to do in comparison with our numbers? Is it right that we should be regarded as doing a job and no more? What is the thrill that we women get out of life? Is it leaving the office, a new dress, a car, dancing, playing the fool, going to the theatre and making our own whoopee? Una is on fire. She's still in her 20s. And alongside editing and publishing The Cosmopolitan, she's working hard establishing her place in Jamaica's literary scene. She writes a play, At What a Price, that will go on to London's West End, and she publishes two volumes of poetry, Tropic Reveries and Height and Depths. The Jamaican Times says she has fine talent. So let's hear a bit from Una. I know too well, beloved, that thou art not for me that other hands and other hearts will minister to thee. I know those eyes so tender on others still will shine and that your kiss will linger on other lips than mine. It feels like a very traditional piece of poetry, doesn't it? It's not modern, (laughs) for sure. Yeah, I think her early poetry is, I mean, the unkind word is derivative, um, some people talk about, you know, drivel. Um, oh, ouch. It, it, it's, yes, ouch, indeed. Um, but I think she was, you know, finding her way and learning about form and publishing possibilities. Mm. Um, so there, is, there are a few poems, I think, in the early collections that are worth noting, and people have, you know, her, her poetry has been um, quite well. Uh, critiqued I think but generally speaking people look to the later work to make some sort of fair assessment of of her as a poet and we know that no one is perfect obviously and it seems that when the cosmopolitan is forced to close in 1931 with spiraling debts Una does a bit of a runner doesn't she leaving her co-editor to clear up the bills Dee how do we square this with the other you know, wonderful aspects of her character. In your book, you mentioned that Amy called her a rascal or it was rascality. I love that word. Um, but could there be something deeper there? Um, a bit of mental fragility? You know, what, what do you think? Well, I certainly think she was having a difficult time mm. already. You know, it was such a big thing to move to London. And 
one can't help but wonder what exactly was going on in Yuna's mind in mm. the year or certainly the months you know before she decided to make that big journey yeah well you know when people talk about migration they talk about these pull and push factors you know normally just in economic terms but I'm sure that's true as well at, a, at an individual level that yeah. you know there's a there's the heart that is saying wow maybe my future is across the seas you know mm. in London but also you know there may be mm. uh, the fragility of you know her own life saying actually you're not going to come to fruition here if you've had these difficulties with maybe these collections of poetry, you know, you've already put on a play, you've already run a magazine, surely there is a better place for you. So I think, yeah, I think it's not too difficult to imagine that sort of internal tug of war mm. that yeah. actually propels her to come to London and see. And, yeah. And so at that point then, in 1932, without telling a soul, Una books her fare to London. And that is, I think, where the next part of our story begins. Now, Dee, please could you help us with this? What is it like for a young Caribbean woman arriving in England in 1932? It must have been really, really alarming at Mm. so many levels. Mm. We're used to now hearing about the Windrush arrivals of 1948 Mm. and those men and women sometimes struggling to make their way, literally, uh, struggling to find accommodation, people having to sleep underground, you know, Clapham shelter and, and all this sort of thing. And you think of Una arriving on her own 16 years earlier, God, yeah. uh, mm. arriving in a city where there are very few black people, mm. so much so that you'd either expect after some time to recognise the ones you pass because they're so few, mm. or to receive verbal abuse on the streets because that is still the nature of life in 30s London. Mm. But there's no doubt that being in London would have been quite alarming. I think it's at this point, one has to remember that, of course, when you're making this sort of colonial to centre leap, the literature that you have been reading is literature that was probably from the 19th century. She hasn't been reading stuff about hard lives in 1930s London. She's not been reading Orwell, for example. Mm. She's been reading romantic poetry. Mm. (laughs) It's going to be a shock. And then she comes and she sees, (laughs) ah, this is is what London is really about. Mm. Because she would not have been educated in any sense of what was going on in, you know, 1920s, 1930s West Africa. She would not have known about people like Jomo Kenyatta, for example, who she met here. She did get to meet C.L.R. James, a Trinidadian Trotskyist, but she would not have known his writing probably when she was in Jamaica. So then suddenly she's having to deal with this different sort of confluence of class and race and identity very tough thing to do and very tough I think at that time for a woman for a black woman we know that she stayed for some time with Harold Moody Mm. Dr Harold Moody Mm. who was another Jamaican um, and his family in Peckham 
So that would have provided her with some sort of comfort, if you like, a sort of safe environment to come home to. So Harold had arrived in England from Jamaica a, a generation earlier. He trained as a doctor, he set up his own GP practice, but he knew from the outset that black people in Britain faced an enormous uphill struggle. And that's why he welcomed people with open arms. And that's why he set up the League of Coloured Peoples, Britain's first significant black-led organisation. I'm sorry to have to chip in again, Carla, with the, oh, you've got to listen to these other episodes. <laughs> this is, again, sort of uh, taking us back to John the Rose. And, and again, about how one generation builds on another generation. And, and, and John LaRose built on the generation from Harold Moody's set, and you've already mentioned them, C.L.R. James, Joma Kenyatta. And I suppose a, sort of a key thing, and, and which maybe links John LaRose to the Harold Moody people and also to Una, is uh, an understanding that the only way you're going to break through is if you take control of the message. Yes, I completely agree. I think it was hugely important. Mm. Um, it wouldn't have suited her personality to be kind of just laid back and accepting of mm. the status quo. <laughs> um, you know, from I, I think of you know all the interviews that I did of uh, speaking to people who knew her, they described somebody who was quite forceful, determined not afraid to use a sharp elbow a little bit <laughs> if she needed to get out and, and meet certain people. And to be fair, Harold Moody had already set up the entire sort of system and network. So liberals who wanted to do something about race and racism knew to contact him. Una was therefore able to use that network to meet people, but also... Mm -hmm to get out and start speaking on particular issues. So, for instance, you know, she talked about the discrimination that black nurses, you know, were mm. facing. Um, and that invitation came to the League of Coloured Peoples and she was obviously, you know, well-placed to then say, OK, I've heard some of these stories, I can go out and talk about this. So it required activism. But I think having done some work in Jamaica, Feeling confident in her voice and, and in her abilities, she was yeah, very well placed to, to do that. And as well as taking control of the message, it's taking control of the image as well, isn't it? Yuna's eyes are open to the small and subtle ways oppression can work just as much as they're open to the big and, and obvious ways. And she realises very early on that the personal is also political. And so, in apparently simple but hugely meaningful act, she stopped straightening her hair, as she writes in Kinky Hair Blues. Go and find a beauty shop, cause I ain't a bell. Go and find a beauty shop, cause I ain't a lovely bell. The boys pass me by, they say I's not so swell. See other young girls, so slick and smart. See those other young girls? So slick and smart. I just go and die on the shelf if I don't make a start. Lord, tis you did give me all this kinky here. Tis you did give me all this kinky here. And I don't envy girls what got those locks so fear. I hate that iron hair and that bleaching skin. Hate that iron hair and that bleaching skin. But I'll be all alone if I don't fall in. I like my black face and my kinky hair. I like my black face and my kinky hair. But 
nobody loves them. I just don't think it's fair. No eyes go impress me here and bleach my skin. Eyes go impress me here and bleach my skin. What won't a girl do some kind of man to win? So the difference between Yuna's early poetry that we talked about, the quite kind of flowery, romantic, it is very different to what she pens in London, isn't it? Yes. You know, here in London, as we've been, you know, discussing, she finds herself in a completely different environment. She becomes aware of race and racism Mm. in contrast with her experience of being in Jamaica. I'm not saying it isn't there, but obviously it's completely different and maybe even more focus on colour and colourism. Those those hierarchies as opposed to the racism that we associate with Britain and the British state. So there's all that for her to deal with. There's a fact of her isolation as well, because although she spent some time living in Harold Moody's house, she doesn't have any family here. She doesn't have anyone who is close. It's a completely different reality. So things like, you know, the black burden, uh, cinema eyes, you know. Again, when you're in a minority um, and you go to the, the cinema, obviously our TV now is changing, but for a long, long time, certainly in my life, you know, you switch on the TV and honestly you expect to see white people and only white people. Right? So when I was young... You know, when there was a show with black people, oh, somebody calling you, say, come, come, have a look. You're all standing around. Mm. <laughs> Me like that, right? Mm. Well, you imagine even more so for Yuna in London in the 30s. You know, so, you know, you go to the cinema and, of course, you're young, you want to be attractive, and all the women you see on the big screen are white, typically with long, fair hair and blue eyes. It's a completely different impact it would have on her, and therefore the poetry changes. Here was a woman who began to express herself as a black woman. And so when women were writing uh, poetry and, to a lesser extent, plays um, in the 1980s, black women critics were able to say well hang on a minute okay we see this happening here and now but 50 years ago we had Una Marson doing something similar so there there is a foremother and that is all to do with how you express your sense of self in this space in Britain in a world in which you are to some extent visible and yet denied and You know, there is always that risk of you being eradicated from the story. In London, Yuna's spending time with pan-Africanist thinkers, but she's also being confronted for perhaps the first time with out-and-out racism day in, day out on the streets of London, something which maybe she didn't expect before coming to the quote-unquote the motherland. One of Yuna's most important and influential poems is one we can't really broadcast because of its title, The N-Word. Does the title of this poem create problems for, for it being 
seen and heard and yes. read. It is difficult to have the poem exposed fully, mm. as it were, mm. because of well, just the nature of things yeah. now. Yeah. Here are just a few lines from it when she's just being called that word while walking down the road. Those little white urchins. They laughed and shouted as I passed along the street. They flung it at me. What made me keep my fingers from choking the words in their throats? I mean, it's such a powerful poem. There's real and totally understandable anger there. In another poem, Una writes, The folks are all white, 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 and they all seem the same. And really, Dee, do you think, you know, has that much changed in 100 years? Gosh, it is nearly 100 years, isn't it? Mm. Um, I think both a yes and a no. Mm. Some things have changed enormously. However, <laughs> so there is, <laughs> this, is, this is the button, there is the balancing act. Depending on what area of work you're in, you can easily find that it is as Una described in that poem. There are many, many employment sectors in Britain today where one would be hard-pressed to find more than one person at a particular level or doing a particular type of job. So I'd say, yeah, racism is alive and well. We're not always helped by people tinkering with appearances, right? If you want to change an organisation, you need to do rather more than just have the moment where, ooh, it's Black History Month. <gasps> We've got some black people. Right? Mm. <laughs> or whatever it is, right? We need more than that. MK, we talked about this a bit when we were trying to unpack Black Boy Lane and uh, that episode, which was about John LaRose as well with uh, Joris Lachane. <sighs> this is your experience as well. I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm, I think just the idea of Black History Month, it was always Roots, Kunta Kinte, I think like MLK, and then, <laughs> then the month's done, and then just back to sort of the normal programme. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know I don't know how, I don't know what it would, would look like, because that's all I, I, I really knew growing up. So, like you said, it's it's there's so many different, like, you know, layers to it, to the kind of like, oh, what is, how do you, how do you kind of have a, a real reflection of, of, of a black experience? I don't know how, what that would look like, because my experience was just that, you know, the same thing every month, pretty much. Mm, yeah. Obviously, I would have sort of my family history, my parents and my, they'd kind of tell me about what they went through and stuff. But even that was kind of, um, that was very different from what I was taught in school, if you know what I mean. So, because I, I I think about this a lot, and I think like so much of our of what we like the, what black people's not even experience, even like we like we've commodified trauma, if you know what I mean. So like so much of our music, so much of our like everything seems to be like based around trauma. Even like youth culture now, and like the kind of the drill music is kind of like a commodification of just like what's going on in like on a ground level in the streets with gangs. And it seems to be, that's, I don't like that. That's our narrative, if you know what I mean. Mm. I'd love there to be something else. Mm. Mm. I agree. I think it's important to remember um, 
not only where we are in terms of smoggy London, but also when, and also what living in that time can feel like. And and although this is taking us back to the 30s, this is also taking us right now to now, the, the 2020s and the 2030s perhaps. So it's the 1930s, Hitler's in power, Mussolini's in power as well, and, and once we're hitting the middle of the decade, it's the Spanish Civil War. It's Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia, Abyssinia, as it was then. You've got concentration camps are not a spectre. They are real, they exist, and people who don't fit in are quite literally being taken aside. I, I suppose it feels to me that there is this existential fear in the 30s, which is comparable in some ways to the existential fear today around climate change. It's where, it's where sort of the personal and the political come together in that sort of mental health and how you feel inside about yourself is reflected in the, the chaos and the fear that you see in the world around you. I suppose I get a sense that this is part of Yuna's story as well, that she has this fear of what, the world is showing her. I mean, she works for the League of Nations. She she works with the Emperor Haile Selassie when he is exiled and he has to leave Abyssinia. Speaking at conferences, the Alliance for Women for Suffrage and Equal Citizenship, it feels that, that, that burnout is there, that there is this angst, this anxiety, this drive, and it becomes too much. And in 1936, Una burns out and takes herself back to, to Jamaica to, to recover, in a way. Is that a fair view of, of what happens with um, Una in the mid, mid-30s? Well, I think she certainly was alert to these major political shifts. Mm-hmm. So this is, if you like, certainly a few stretches away from sitting at a table writing poetry. This is the international stage, big politics, world politics. I'm not saying she didn't have frailties. I'm not saying she didn't have difficulties. Of course she did. But that's who Una was in the, 19, the mid-1930s. Um, that particular focus now... I know some people gone down, oh, she tired, she burnt out. But all the politics on the world stage was incredibly troubling. If she had been so terribly fragile, she would have sat at home. But she didn't. She actually got to work on the issues that were happening there and then, which had also huge international implications. So Yoon is back in London a couple of years later, but it's the war which plays a big a big part for Yuna. Because everything she's been doing up until that time, the poetry, the writing, the politics, pan-Africanism, women's rights, everything comes together for a few glorious years, culminating in Yuna becoming the first black radio producer at the BBC. I mean, there's, there is a wonderful photograph of Yuna sitting at a large editorial table sort of commanding the room. She's got T.S. Eliot is sitting at her right hand, <laughs> George Orwell standing at her shoulder. I mean, around her is the Indian writer Vinu Shitali, the Tamil poet Miri Tambimuti, the great Mulk Rajanand, the Indian art critic V.K. Narayana Menon, a truly multicultural team. 
I mean, to, to paraphrase Satnan Sangara, it's a multicultural team because Britain had a multicultural empire. That's right. And remember, at this time, radio is so much more than radio. It's the only thing going, the only way to connect people all over the world, all over the empire. And so UNA becomes part of the BBC's empire service. And throughout 1940, she frequently reminds the senior team that it's very important to boost the morale of Caribbean servicemen as well as the families back home. And in 1942, her hard work is rewarded with a promotion and she becomes West Indies producer. Una's producing Calling the West Indies and before you know it, the groundbreaking weekly Caribbean Voices feature as well, which showcases the best of Caribbean writing. So not only is she a woman producer, which is rarer than hen's teeth, let's face it, but she's a black producer, the only one. And it's more than producing. She's front and centre. She's the face and the voice of the programme as well. And I say the face because there's a brilliant Ministry of Information film from 1943 of a calling West Indies recording where pretty much anyone who's anyone from the Caribbean and African diaspora is in the room. There's Ulrich Cross, the legendary RAF airman. There's Leary Constantine, the cricketer, who'd become the first black peer in the House of Lords. George Arthur Roberts, the firefighter who'd been honoured with a blue plaque and countless other black soldiers, sailors and aircrew. So, Dee, what significance must have these programmes had on people listening back home in the Caribbean? It was huge. I mm. mean, I think you're completely right. I think we can't overestimate what it meant for people to be able to hear their relatives on the airwaves, for people to know that the contribution they and their families were making was actually being recognised mm. by London. I think Una's status, obviously, as a Jamaican person, um, clearly skyrocketed. I mean, she was the biz, you know, yeah. what, she was, <laughs> what she was doing in Britain, being the BBC. I mean, let's face it, the BBC still has real kudos around the world, right? Mm. Um, but back then, it would have been phenomenal for Una Marson to be there, as a producer, as you say, fronting these programmes and really enabling the storytelling, actually, mm. of the war through these different avenues, different opportunities. Mm. I think they made a, a great choice. I know that just before her formal appointment, there was obviously some discussion behind the scenes. Who else could possibly do this job? Oh, wow. Who who was there in London mm. who had... She was this, it. She was it. She had the journalistic skills. She had the contacts. The BBC definitely needed her to take this on and do it. But, um, well, I think we have to be really glad that she took that struggle on, mm. you know, yeah. that, that she did it. Um, black programmers, I think, are now feeling, okay, good, we have someone that we can look to. I think there's opportunity to have her as a front runner really do help people to make sense of their own experience, maybe even drive ambition to some extent. Mm. People warm to this. I think they warm to the contours of her story mm. as well. There is this moment of great public success in a major British institution. But then there's also the um, the ripple underneath of all the 
things that she's touching on to do with race and gender and class and social opportunities, creativity, how one finds oneself, finds one's voice, you know, mm. links with other people. So, yeah, I think there's there are, there are many strands to Yuna's story that appeal to people, help people along a bit. It's, it's strange that someone who has done so much in, in the 30s and, and the 40s, sort of when the war ends, trying to piece together the, the rest of Yuna's life does seem to be quite hard. And, you know, and, and, and there are people who say that she spent time in mental institutions. There are people who say she went to America and got married. There are, people, there are stories about setting up the Pioneer Press in Jamaica, travelling the world. She did. All of those things. She did set up the Pioneer Press. Mm-hmm. She did go to America. She did get married. So those things are all real. Mm-hmm. But it's also true to say that having been the person behind Caribbean Voices at the BBC, nothing that Una did after that could shine as brightly mm-hmm. as this work from this big major corporation. But that doesn't mean she didn't try. So something like the Pioneer Press was her attempt to continue to keep those links alive, if you like, between a UK-based literary society and what was happening in Jamaica. It's true, there are bits in this post-BBC, post-war life. But actually, if we look at Una's life as a whole, there were always bits. It was always... um, Nowadays, it's commonplace to have a portfolio career. Una was always doing that. Mm. When she was 20, she was doing some writing, you know, some editing, some helping out with arts, you know, some women's work, etc. And she continued to do that. But n- there's no doubt that the BBC years stand out like, you know, this glittering mm. ball mm. because this is a sign that a black woman from the colonies can become something in a major British institution. And so we know Una dies at the relatively young age of 60, didn't yes. she, in 1965. I mean, again, that's a feature of quite a lot of, of the people we featured on Trapped History. There's Nellie Bly, Ricardo Mara Tate, Emmy Murta, Evelyn Dunbar, all of these people, they burn brightly and then burn out. Was Una happy? Oh, gosh. Sometimes, yes, sometimes not. Sometimes she was happy and saying to other people, oh, come on, cheer up, don't be so pessimistic. You know, happiness is not some fixed state, is it? Mm. That, you know, that we have these moments that we kind of slip into happiness and joy. The, the human condition is not one in which you say, oh, yes, I am now happy. I think she definitely had her tough times, though. Mm. Very tough. But you would, wouldn't you? I mean, I said, I said earlier on, I said, that's quite a burden. It's also quite a responsibility. It's also quite um, a lonely task. You know, she, she, as you rightly say, she's surrounded by people. She's gregarious. But it's, it's her on her own, really. That's, for me, that, that is a, a tough, that's a tough way to be. Mm. If you're going to be leader, 
and you have to be willing to go out and fill that space to say nobody is taking this seriously. Who in Britain was taking the situation of black women in the colonies seriously in the 1930s? I mean, if you look around British political circles now, who is sitting around worrying about the situation of African women and girls or black women in the Caribbean? She was willing to take that on a century ago and say, okay, as much as she could, you know, with the avenues that were available to her, she was willing to go into spaces and say, this is what's happening with people who look like me. Yes, that's a very big deal. But if you are, you know, willing to lead, then that's what it's about. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Jenny Steele, René Clement, and Aisha Ricketts. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating. It really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Thanks for listening. And see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> We're all over. <like> <laughs>